Happy Hanukkah! This year, Judaism Unbound is partnering with our friends, the Torah Studio, in an initiative called Apocryphist, Hanukkah Unbound and Uncanonized. We believe that Hanukkah can be a time of year where we connect to many books that were not officially included in the Hebrew Bible, but which nonetheless can be meaningful for Jewish individuals, communities, and the world. Through four bonus episodes, we will be exploring some of these books in detail and asking big questions about what canon even means. Liana Wertman, founder of the Torah Studio, which is an accessible and inclusive learning space that encourages people to take ownership of our traditional Jewish texts and to pass partner with us on live streaming events exploring books from Esther to Lamentations to Ecclesiastes to Ruth, joins us for all four of these bonus conversations. Learn more and sign up for our Apocryphist email list, which will be sent out throughout Hanukkah, by visiting judaismunbound.com apocrypha. That's A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A. This is a special bonus edition of Judaism Unbound, Tobit. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Lex Rofberg. And I'm Liana Wertman. We are here for the third time's the charm episode of Apocryphist. It is going to be a good one. We are looking at a book today that I really love. It's called Tobit. And of course, that means its main character is named Tobias, not Tobit. Tobit is... uh, the first character we meet, but actually Tobias's father. Very, very confusing stuff. But we're going to look at this book. The book of Tobit today is our window into Apocrypha. And as a reminder, in case you missed our two previous episodes in this fun bonus series during Hanukkah, Apocryphest is a moment to dive into the magic of books of the Apocrypha, which are books that did not get canonized in the official Tanakh, the official Hebrew Bible, but which have been seen as sacred by Jews at various points. So, for example, today, the Book of Tobit, this is a book that we found a bunch of manuscripts of at the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, we have evidence that a couple thousand years ago, there were Jews who saw this book as worth reading and of interest and maybe of a similar status to books that are now in the canon of the Tanakh. So, that's kind of funky. But Liana, Take us into this book of Tobit. What are some of your early impressions? I know you just read it for the first time recently. I also read it for the first time recently, but like, what are your first impressions? Yeah, I just read the book of Tobit so that we could talk about it. And it was really fun. It's short. So anybody who's interested in reading it, you can pop onto Safari or Google book of Tobit. And it's a quick read. I didn't know what to expect when I started reading it. And it was so much more and so different than what I expected. A lot of the Apocrypha that I've read is telling stories that are already somewhat situated either in historical events that I'm aware of or in Jewish spaces that were really important to their time. And just to get specific about that, like Maccabees is a historical circumstance that you're aware of, although not everything said in the book of Maccabees is necessarily precise, true history, but it's like about real historical events. And something like Jubilees is related to the book of Genesis. Like there's books that are related to existing books of canon. Exactly. Whereas what's surprising about this book is there is this time in Jewish history during the first temple period that we don't know a lot about. The northern 10 tribes were taken over by Assyria and went into exile. And most of our literature refers to them as lost or gone and disappeared. We still talk about them as the 10 lost tribes. And yet here is this story of one of those tribes living in Assyria under the Assyrian rule in exile. They're living in Nineveh, the place that Jonah went to to prophesize and tell them how awful they were, which means that we're reading a story about a group of people that normally we don't consider to have 
continued to be Jewish. And here they are, not just living Jewishly, but really striving to be the best Jews and community that they can be. Whether they are in Nineveh or in other cities, they're clearly talking and living Jewish lives well past what we would have expected or I expected based on the idea that they were taken and gone. And so I'm very excited by this story. And some of the themes that come up in it tell us a lot about Jewish life at that time too. But that part really catches me. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It, that didn't strike me, but that's so important. I mean, I I didn't even really think about the time period it's supposed to take place. Like, yeah, it's it's written probably a couple hundred years before the turning from BCE to CE. So like 2200 and change years ago. But it sets itself 500-ish, 600-ish years before that because it centers a group that by and large we hear as kind of not so good because the people that we're told are the, the protagonists in most of the stories we have are those that end up in Judah. And then there's just like exile. But here, the Book of Tobit, not only is it about somebody in that place, it's about some like exemplars of values we're supposed to strive for. Like Tobit, the first character we meet, we learn about how he's like going above and beyond to like bury bodies that are literally like lying in the street. And it seems like, I mean, I think it strikes us obviously that we like think it's bad for bodies to just be like neglected in the street. And he's going and burying them when no when others are failing to. He does a number of things that we're clearly supposed to see as like really morally positive. And then his son, Tobias, all of these names, they're literally based on tov, like the Hebrew word for good. So these are like meant to be role models. But, you know, they're from the tribe of Naphtali, who we have no role models really from the tribe of Naphtali. The, the character Naphtali is probably one of the most ignored tribes of the 12 like brothers when they're still brothers and they're not yet tribes in the book of Genesis. And then there's not really anybody in basically the entire Hebrew Bible who is like a hero who is from the tribe of Naphtali. And so part of me thinks that like the reason for this story in the first place might be to try and say, oh, we actually want to have heroes across more tribes than we have. And this book meets that gap in a way that I actually think a lot of Midrash does. A lot of Midrash tries to find characters in Tanakh that we don't hear a lot about and like give the backstory, give us more color to them. And so that's, we, we don't get it about Naphtali here, but we get it about some of his descendants. And then we get just a wild ride of a story. Let's just do a quick blow by blow of what happens. And we don't need to cover all the details, but I'm going to like say a little bit and then it's like the thing where you're reading in class and you and you read a sentence and then you say popcorn, Liana, and then you start like, let's do that just to give a taste. So I will start at the beginning of the story. We meet a character named Tobit. He is an exemplar of all sorts of good things. We hear that he like gives alms. He seems to like support charity. We hear that he is going around and trying to bury bodies that have been neglected and left in the street like we just talked about. He is at, interestingly, a Shavuot meal, a meal celebrating the holiday of Shavuot, which many listening to this podcast know is my favorite holiday. He goes right after his Shavuot meal and buries a body that has been neglected in the street and as he does this, or I forget if it's as he does this or after or on his way, a bird poops in his eye and he goes blind. Popcorn, Liana. Tobit is very upset that he is blind, like incredibly upset. 
and is praying to God, asking to be saved, to be healed, and gets into this like absolute despair. And in that, he says to his son, Tobias, my brother, and I can't really tell, honestly, if it's his actual brother, because they seem to call every Israelite brother or sister kin, um, which I think is really beautiful also, and like shows the connection that they were feeling to people, even in exile. But he had given money to Gabael, a city over, a two-day trip from there. And he sends his son Tobias to go get that money because he's worried that he's going to die and Tobias will need that money. But he asks him to go find somebody to go with him. And poof, a stranger appears to help Tobias on his way. Popcorn Lex. This stranger, we learn, is an angel, Raphael, Raphael, which is really interesting because his name means like God's healer. Um, And it seems that his purpose is to accompany Tobias with this newfound money to go and meet somebody named Sarah. We might have gotten the order wrong a little bit here. I forget exactly the order. But meanwhile, we have learned that far away in a place called Ekpatana, there's this woman, Sarah. She's had a real tough go of it because she has tried to get married seven times to seven different husbands. They've all died on the wedding day. The reason for this is that there's this demon, Asmodeus, who is killing them. It seems like Asmodeus either is in love with Sarah and doesn't want her marrying any of these folks, or for whatever reason, he is hyper-focused on preventing her from getting married. It seems we are hinted, like is the case in many rom-coms, that Tobias, this son of Tobit, and Sarah, who are far spread in different places, we, we're sort of hinted that they're beshared, that they're meant to be together. And so the subtext of this trip is that they're going a long distance for Tobias to meet this person, Sarah. Popcorn Liana. On the trip, he walks through a river and a fish jumps at him, it would seem, and he takes the fish to eat it. And Raphael says, wait up. First, I need you to take the heart and the gall out of the fish. And they have two uses. The first one is that don't worry about it, but like the heart would help somebody who is being possessed by demons free themselves of demons. And the gall would help people with blindness. For some reason, Tobias doesn't clearly understand the connections that are happening, makes his way to Ekbatana and finds Retwell. Sarah's father. And finds Sarah and stays with them. Popcorn back. And so basically from that point on, I'm going to condense the conclusion. We get the happy ending that everybody who's engaged with the rom-com wants. First off, through the help of Raphael, who has this expertise about fish insides and how it can serve different healing purposes, we rid Sarah of this demon, Asmodeus, who has wiped out seven potential husbands. So that's good step one. And then she comes back with Tobias and they are united. They, they are married to one another, which is quite a risky thing. Like Tobias has to think like, there's a chance I might die tonight. But he doesn't because they've abolished this demon. We get that happy ending. They come back and like meet Tobit and Anna, who are Tobias's parents. We've gotten the beautiful romantic ending that we all wanted. And that's the story. So there's a lot to unpack here. But the first thing I'd say is this is weird. Like compared to a lot of what we have in our canon, Look, we have some interesting stuff. We've got, you know, different kinds of angels 
dreams and we've got psychedelic kinds of things but the extent to which there are things happening in the store where you're like wait this is a text that is canonized in some versions of the bible it's like we said it's not in the jewish canon but like it's wild we from start to finish we've got angels acting as like spies on earth we've got fish insides being the magic oh by the way another part of the fish's inside is used to clear tobit from his blindness i forgot that part at the end that's at the very end when there's this marriage between sarah and tobias so we've got fish insides all for the sake of this glorious rom-com that made me notice that we don't really have that we don't have that genre in our canon and i think another gap that this text is looking to fill is like we should have a romance this is written in a time period where I think some of those stories are starting to become more popular. Maybe in a future year, we'll talk about Joseph and Aseneth, which is another rom-com that does not make it into the Jewish canon that comes. So what are some of your takes, Liana, about this very strange book of ours? What I love about this book is, like you said, it doesn't really fit into our classic categories. And yet it reminds me a little bit of the book of Esther, when it comes to diaspora and it comes to how Jews were living, one of the things that's exceptional about the fact that Tobit was burying these bodies is that he was taking on ritual impurity, which would have made it impossible for him to go back to the temple. And he was so far away. And he talks about what that means to him, that he's willing to be ritually impure and figure out how to exist in this diaspora space as long as it means that he can take care of his community, that he can bury bodies and give them the respect they deserve and give alms to the poor, right? He is much more interested in the spiritual, relational aspect of Judaism, even though it's very clear and they tell us over and over again how much he wishes he could be participating in the classic pieces. So I think it's a great example of exile literature that we start to get around this time. And it also is exceptional to me because it looks a lot more like the demon stories that you read in some parts of Talmud and especially in the Ashkenazi folktales that I've read. I've read a lot of like Jewish folktales about demons and they all read like this. There's somebody who's possessed by a demon and they're husbands all die. And you have this beautiful story of them still coming together that calls on so many biblical pieces. I mean, Isaac and Rebecca, we just read that a few weeks ago in Genesis of them getting together by having to travel with godly ways of having people come together. And I just want to add in one tiny detail that we didn't get to, which is that the dad, Ritwell, is so nervous about his daughter killing off this next husband, that he actually has them dig a grave in the nighttime so that they can bury him without anyone noticing. And then they go and they sneak in and they're both like sleeping happily next to each other. And they're like, okay, fill the grave in. So no one knows that we were gonna do that. Like they were so ready. Um, It just is a really sweet story. I don't know. It is a rom-com. What about you, Lex? What's exciting for you about this book? So there's a lot that excites me I love the way that you're talking about the precise way in which they're going about this burial and like under the cover of night. Like there are little things that we can spot here. And in particular, one knock I think the Apocrypha books get is people love to say, well, like, sure, they might have been important to Jews at one time, but like we made some decisions, filtered them out, and like other books 
had a bigger impact on the future of Judaism. And so those are the books we read because it's not just about the Bible. It's not just even about the books written shortly after the Bible. It's about rabbinic literature, whatever. This book foreshadows a lot of different rabbinic Jewish things. I'm I, I'm not I'm not going to make a causative claim. I'm not going to say this book is the reason why we have those later rabbinic things. I don't have enough research under my belt to claim any of that. I do think that there's some interesting stuff at play here. First, you mentioned this like genre of people who have like seven seven husbands or that like folks might be listening right now and being like, "Wait, this sounds kind of familiar. Isn't there a Hanukkah thing? Isn't there like an existing Hanukkah story about a woman who has seven sons who die, uh, who are like martyred? Yeah, there's this idea of Hannah and her seven sons. The seven is not trivial. I've talked a million times about the importance of the number seven, but it's it's meant to convey a specific kind of literary thing. It's kind of like how in Western culture we have the three little pigs, the three blind mice, the three like... There's numbers that we just sort of use to convey certain kinds of storytelling maneuvers. Seven is one of them, especially in terms of seven sons, seven husbands, etc. So we have a potential theme or story that could at least have an influence on later stories in Jewish tradition that rely on the notion of seven sons who experience death or seven husbands, etc. Also, the burial at nighttime. I mentioned this before. Tobit buries a body on Shavuot. That is against the rules, according to later tradition. He is in diaspora. It's very clear that he is located in diaspora. He is not located in the land of Israel. According to later Jewish law, that would mean Shavuot is two days. And so if he is having a meal for Shavuot and then immediately goes and buries a body, it would seem he is doing prohibited labor that breaks the rules of Shavuot. Now, my point with this is that almost certainly the ideas we have about what was forbidden on Shavuot did not exist at this time. And yet, this holiday is important here. And when you tell the story of Shavuot's evolution over time, this book actually matters a lot because it mentions it explicitly. And it's a point on the timeline where we can look at and see Huh, what did they think Shavuot was? Jubilees is another one. It seems like the idea of oaths being associated with Shavuot, which means in Hebrew, both weeks and oaths, if you think about it in different respects, becomes associated with Shavuot in the book of Jubilees. Later on, it becomes associated with a pretty famous oath of, you know, the covenant, like a, a oath in the sense of like agreement between part, like between the Jewish people and God at Mount Sinai. That's that's not random that we see that evolution. We have a precedent in a book of Apocrypha for somebody who quote unquote breaks the rules, who is good. Their name is goodness. Tobit, Tov. For all of us out here being unbound Jews and maybe, for example, having a 24-hour event on Shavuot that involves using electricity in ways that people like to say breaks the rules, We've got a precedent for somebody who is living in diaspora, who buries a body. And what's interesting is I'm not the first to notice this. There are later Jewish manuscripts of the book of Tobit, which is a sign that Jews continued to care about Tobit even into, into the Middle Ages. And they edit the part about Tobit burying a body so that it says, and Tobit on the second night of Shavuot. So Shavuot has just ended He's having his meal on the second night, and then the second night ends, and so now it's no longer Shavuot. So now he's burying his body after the holiday concludes because the text doesn't want him to be breaking the rules. 
they actually notice that problem and fit it to meet what their agenda is. I'm doing the same by saying that, no, 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 no. I think he, Davka, he specifically buried this body on Shavuot because there are actually things that are more important than not doing certain forms of prohibited labor on holidays, including the respect of human dignity that would be incorporated with burying a body. I also think that Jews gathering with one another to learn Torah is something that should lead us to use electronics in a way that other people would forbid. So that's a way in which Apocrypha can be relevant, not just like as a historical artifact, but as something informing our lives today. And I'm intrigued as I read this, I had this realization. They copied this in the show Riverdale, speaking of it's still relevant in our lives today. In the sixth season of Riverdale, which is maybe one of the most ridiculous seasons of Riverdale, they have an angel, Raphael, come down to help out Tabitha, the character, to get rid of a demon, right? Like the Lucifer is in Riverdale and Raphael is her guardian angel. And it just is so one-to-one, this idea that there is a guardian angel, right? That is so new, another level to Jewish thought and context, that it is a little surprising, right? We see angels interacting with humans, but we don't necessarily see them sent to protect them and give them advice in how to stay safe. I also think that it's fun that both of us have very different excitements about this book. I'm a huge fan of diaspora literature and how it teaches us to be Jews abroad. And that includes today, right? But it, And that's where we overlap so well, because this book also teaches us that the way that we act, the way that we create Jewish concepts is communal when it can't be physical or tangible. There is still so much worth in us putting our efforts into taking care of one another, regardless of if we are able to fix everything or do all of the mitzvot. I'm so on board your excitement about diaspora literature generally. I really like when within traditional canons and outside of them, we have stories that anchor Jews outside of just the land of Israel. Esther is a great example of that. The book of Esther does not, it takes place in Persia. And not only does it take place in Persia, but it it references basically all of the societies that it knew about. It talks about, you know, 127 provinces from Mihodu Ad Kush, like from like the whole world that they seemed to engage with at all is part of that story. And I think similarly, Tobit here, it's meant to be not just a story about Ekbatana and Nineveh, but a story relevant to anybody who is living in diaspora. I'm excited about that. That's a perfect note to end this conversation on. And we've got one more bonus episode in this little mini-series of ours during Hanukkah. And that's going to be a little bit unorthodox, which we've already been getting unorthodox, but it's a different kind of unorthodox which is we're not going to be choosing one particular book that is an apocryphal book that people see as part of that genre known as apocrypha, books that are very old, like a couple thousand years, and didn't make it into the Jewish canon, quote-unquote. We're going to be looking more recently than that and thinking about other ways to understand what apocrypha might even mean or teach us. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm ending on a little bit of a cliffhanger because I really want folks to tune into that one. But with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.